Put mute on. Somebody's pressed the mute button, sorry. Yes, there are many things in John's life that we can um, look at and emulate, really. And so I'm going to um, look at John this morning. And as I say, we're going to be looking at um, turning back through the scriptures and even going beyond Matthew's gospel quite a lot. Uh, because obviously there are other Gospels that tell us about him and it's worth doing that. Um, I mentioned to our cell group on Tuesday that um, we were into 14 and chapter 14 and that we were going to look at um, John the Baptist and somebody said, is that where he's beheaded? And I said, that's right. And then somebody said, are you going to give us a visual aid? (laughs) And I think they were thinking about me (laughs) when they said it. But I've, I've called it John the Baptist, Man of Destiny. And I hope you'll see that he indeed was and, and is a man uh, of destiny. But did he fulfil it? We can have a destiny, but will we fulfil it? Uh, and that's an important question to ask about him. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you. There's so much in your word and you've given it to us for instruction. Lord, that we might grow in knowledge and grace and, Father, that we might be more effective witnesses for you in the world. Lord, work on us. Work on us by your spirit this morning. Lord, you highlight for each one of us individually those things that are important for you that you want to teach us. Lord, so come upon us by your spirit, both the preacher and the hearers, In Jesus' name. Destiny. What do you think about destiny? It kind of speaks of a plan for our life, doesn't it? That Something that's been planned beforehand um, which will help map out our life. And it's maybe something we think we were made for. We might reach a stage in our lives when things are going particularly well and we think, this is it. I was destined for this. It feels so right, it feels so great. It might be um, that um, we've got a new job and uh, we've, we've enjoyed the other jobs we've had. Some have been good, some have been not so good. But this one just seems to fit. Everything about us seems to be just right. We match this job so wonderfully. And uh, we think, oh, maybe I was destined for this job. I hope Julian's thinking that about his, his new job. Right? Or it might be about marrying the ideal man or woman. And we think, we were made for each other. We were destined for each other. (laughs) And we look into one another's eyes and we say, you are my destiny. That's a cue for a song, but I'm not going to sing it. You'll be pleased to know. Not going to sing it. Okay, so I think we, under, we understand what we mean by this concept. But regarding John, as we look at this rather tragic last chapter in his life, the thought of destiny hardly fits, does it? You think, surely something's gone wrong with this man, and, and really, it's, his life is snuffed out as a result um, of a weak man who makes foolish promises, and then a, a revengeful, scheming woman uh, who has her revenge, takes the opportunity, she's an opportunist, and takes her op- this opportunity to take her revenge out on John. However, as we look at John's ministry, which 
affected really the whole of, whole of Judea. We'll see later it was very widespread. Thousands of people came to John to be baptised. That um, fulfilling his destiny, it was inevitable that there was going to be a clash uh, with different sections of society, not the least uh, the king. And John was to be a vital link between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, he provided continuity between the Old and the New. It's almost as if he had a foot in both. Actually, John, uh, Jesus indicates he's part of the Old, but he's come proclaiming the New. And I rather like to think of him, if you take your Bible, not literally, but if you think about your Bible, the division between the Old and New Testaments, John's like a hinge uh, between those two, those two um, covenants, as we would say. And John is announcing a new order and a new type of righteousness, which is not measured by formal religion, but it's measured by the heart response to God. And he talks about repentance which is a change of mind and a change of heart and insists that it must bring a change of lifestyle as well, an inner change of heart. And he has no time for sin and hypocrisy. He is very outspoken, as you probably know. He uses really offensive terms. You brood of vipers, he says, and who told you to flee from the wrath to come? He's very straight and he's even um, straight with the king and accuses the king uh, uh, of adultery because he's married his brother Philip's wife. So then we come to the notes then. I want to take a few moments to review his life, this man of destiny, and then to finish and take a look at what, what quality enabled him to fulfil his destiny in the best way. What helped him to make the most of his destiny? And I believe that will be something that will help us as well. So John is in prison for his condemnation of the king. And here we've got a quote from Luke. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, or his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done. We don't know about so much about all the other evil things, but John was outspoken about those, obviously. Herod added this to them all, to those evil things. He locked John up in prison. Nevertheless, if you look at Mark's account, it's quite clear that Herod, although he feared John, he was fascinated by him. He, he could see that this was a, a spiritual man and, and that there was even some, something miraculous about him. And I think he was actually distressed when he was tricked into beheading John. Herod was fascinated with him. So what about John's destiny and ministry? Um, he was preordained, as it were, wasn't he? There was, he was predestined for a particular role. And I've just put some headlines here um, in the notes. We're not going to those in detail, but just to give you a flavour, really. He's of priestly descent. Both his mother and his father uh, came from a princely line. His miracle birth and ministry were foretold by Gabriel to Zechariah, his father, and also to Mary, pregnant with Jesus. He was a miracle baby. His mother Elizabeth was past childbearing. It's another miracle. He, he was fill, it said of him, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. I don't know anybody else of whom that was said. It wasn't even said of Jesus. We, we, we have the experience of Jesus, the Holy Spirit coming on him, 
at his baptism. But it's said of John, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. He's called a prophet of the Most High to prepare the way for God's salvation. God is breaking into history and John's a key figure in this. John is vital uh, to the opening up of the way for Jesus to come with his salvation. John is the fulfilment of Malachi's promise of Elijah's return before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The last book in the Old Testament is Malachi and the last verses in there talk about the return of, of Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord and that things are going to be happened, people's hearts are going to be changed. Now the fact of the matter is that John was not Elijah raised from the dead but John clearly came in the power and the spirit of Elijah and Jesus even mentions that. It was four, it had been 400 years before there had been any word from heaven. Malachi, between Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, 400 years, nothing from God. And John breaks this, John breaks this silence from heaven. And it's said of him, he was sent from God. And he burst on the scene out of obscurity. Quite a strange guy, I should think, the way he dressed and so on. Interestingly, he dressed like Elijah. If you read about Elijah, he had a rough coat and a leather belt. And so did, so did John. So no wonder people thought this might be Elijah uh, raised from the dead. But he had a twofold message. The first one was, the Messiah is upon you. The Messiah is here. It's right now. The imminence of the Messiah. And the urgent need for repentance to prepare for this coming of Jesus the Messiah. Um, I said earlier that it, he affected the whole of Judea. And the indication is that there were thousands of people coming to him. It wasn't, I mean, on a video you get a handful, a couple of dozen people uh, being baptised, but the indication is it was thousands. It, Luke uses the word crowds. And then in, in Matthew 3 it says, people went out to him from J Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the river Jordan. So his popular, his ministry is effective. The, the, he, he's hit the right note with the people. They, they know they need to repent and they're coming to him, they're flocking to him. So part of John's role was to make, break the mould. He's got to break the mould of the old traditional kind of religion that people had got used to. And um, he calls for righteous living in keeping with repentance. If you want to read that, you can look at Luke, Luke 3, um, 7 to 20. But just to summarise, uh, he said, many of you are, are, are putting store by the fact that Abraham is your father. But you can't put your faith in just being a Jew. Being a Jew will not save you. Uh, you need uh, to have repentance. You have a, a lifestyle that's in keeping with repentance. He says, be generous to others, share what you have. Officials must deal honestly. And he mentions tax collectors. You know that tax collectors were despised because it was the easiest thing for them to fiddle the books and to make money for themselves at the expense of the people. So they were despised people. And he says, don't do that, deal honestly. Soldiers asked him what they should do. He said, don't use your authority for extortion. You've got a lot of authority. Don't 
lord it over the people and take advantage of them. The time of judgment is at hand. And he was very clear about that. He said the axe is laid at the root of the tree. All right? The old order has to go. The old, old order has to go. There needs to be a revolution, a revolutionary change. So his ministry was very, very effective. Uh, he was a successful minister of that which God had given him. But we see that this man of destiny had his doubts. If you like to turn back to 11, chapter 11. We, we've dealt with this in some measure, but I do want to return to it. John is put in prison, and obviously for him everything's gone wrong, and he has his doubts. And um, I'll read it for you. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So, John has his doubts. Did I get it wrong? Where, where is this baptism of fire? Remember, John said, I baptise with water, but one's coming after me who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And many people believe that that fire is the fire of judgment. He was coming to bring judgment to the nation. And John says, well, you've brought judgment to the nation, but I'm in prison. What's, what's gone wrong with all this? And it was natural that perhaps he should feel that way. And I think it's, it's, it's fine for faithful servants of God to have their doubts. Do you have your doubts at times about things? The main reason is, in spite of all the good things that God has done for us and shown us, God does not show us everything. So we, we may have had a, you know, a, a, a really good period in our Christian life and suddenly things begin to go wrong. And God does not tell us why they are going wrong. God does not necessarily tell us. And we can have doubts. And the, the finest men of God have had their doubts. I've just given an example here about Elijah. Uh, we've already been thinking about Elijah, but you know um, that in his day, and you can read about it in 1 Kings 18 through to 19, 
for, um, that the nation had got to a, a place where they were running after the god Baal and they were being encouraged by the king, King Ahab and his terrible wife Jezebel. Um, they were in league, she was in league with the prophets of Baal, she entertained them at her table and Elijah said it's time for a showdown, it's time for a showdown. He gathered all the people and the prophets uh, and he was going to have a contest so he builds an altar, puts on a, a, a sacrifice on it and he challenges the prophets of Baal to call down fire from their God to consume uh, the, the offering. And he says to the people, if the Lord is God, choose him. If Baal is God, choose him. But the, the one who is God will answer by fire. Well, the prophets of Baal, they go mad. They cut themselves. They go on for hours and hours and hours and nothing happens. But then Elijah calls on the Lord. But beforehand he puts water all over the altar and it flows all around the trench. It's absolutely saturated. And he calls on the Lord and God answers by fire. Consumes the offering, licks up all the, the water. And as a result, uh, Elijah orders that all the 350 prophets of Baal should be executed, which they were. So God turns up. God does exactly what he asked for. So I'm just going to read to you now from the beginning of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed, killed the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Now Elijah's been very successful. He's now confident. You think he would have said, I think I care about that. But what we read is Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beth Beersheba in, in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So the mightiest of God's servants can have their doubts and have their down times and their depression. Right? But if you know the story, God deals graciously with Elijah and he affirms him and tells him, there are plenty of people who still serve me in the land. You're not on your, you're not on your own. And what we find is that Jesus did not condemn John for his doubts. If you're on the notes, it's the next page. Jesus did not condemn him for his doubts, but gently took him back to the prophetic vision, this prophetic vision of the Messiah, which John was all wrapped up in that, it was all part of his coming, to refute any inadequate or false ideas of the coming of the Messiah. The people naturally thought that Jesus was coming as a political power to rid the nation of the, of the Romans and, uh, and, and the kind of subjection that they were under. Uh, and maybe John thought that a bit too, as I said earlier. He's saying, well, where's the fire to bring justice? And Jesus refutes that. No, this is not what it's about. But in spite of John's doubts, Jesus wholeheartedly affirms him. He says, I tell you the truth, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So what's Jesus' conclusion about John and his ministry? Thumbs up. All right? Jesus gives John the thumbs up. Right, spot on, John. You're right on track. You're right on track. In spite of your doubts, don't worry. You're on track. So let's, um, 
just look now what, what, what I think is the, the, the place where we hopefully will have um, some more application for ourselves. And I've, I've called it the secret of the success of John's ministry and his joy. Do you think of John as a man of joy? You brood of vipers, he says. Rah! You know, growling at the people. Would you say he was a man of joy? And where does he get his joy from? Um, we're going to need to turn to John's Gospel to get some insights here. So turn to John chapter 1, would you? I, I want to say that um, I want to acknowledge the fact that um, a lot of the thoughts I've got on this particular section um, I've pinched from John Piper. I listened to one of his sermons that covers this and was greatly inspired by it, so I've stolen some of his thoughts, all right? John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 9. John was a witness, and so are we. Very clearly, all God's people are a witness uh, to God. So this is why it's relevant. I'll just read 1 to 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And we know from verse 14 that this is talking about Jesus uh, in his... Uh, um, pre-existence as it were he is the word of God through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made in him was life and that life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness but the darkness has not understood it or overcome it then he talks about John the Baptist it's sometimes confusion you're not really sure which John is being spoken of. But this is John, the apostle, speaking now about John the Baptist. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So the light of God is coming into the world. This blinding, holy light is coming into the world. And there is a sense in which the light did not need a witness. God didn't need a witness as such. But we know that the light was veiled in flesh. You know, the, the glory of Jesus is veiled in flesh. In flesh. But so God didn't need a witness, but he said there must be one. God said, I must have a witness Human witness is a necessity and a witness who is sent from God. It's not human initiative. So God wants a God-sent witness. And it could be a written witness. At the end of John's Gospel, we read this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But here it is. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's a written witness, that, and when you receive that witness, it's a means of eternal life. No one is saved without a witness, and that witness must be sent. Now, you might, it might come to mind, as it did with me as I was preparing this, surely we've heard of people, uh, they, they might be Hindus, they're in a Hindu temple, and they get this vision of Jesus. Nobody's told them about Jesus. They haven't read a Bible. They've not had a witness. And they have a vision of Jesus. And they submit to that vision of Jesus. They say, well, where's the witness? Where's the necessity of the witness? Well, 
I don't know about the individual cases, but in most cases I would think that experience has to be put into context for those people. They have to be told who this Jesus is, what he came to do, what benefit he can be to them and how they can be saved. So I'll go along still to say that no one is saved without a witness and that witness must be sent. Faith comes from hearing the message. There in Romans. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? It's not personally initiative. They need to be sent. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So God needs witnesses. He still needs them. And we are his witnesses. As Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we are witnesses. God still needs a witness. So why was John effective as a witness? He was a witness, but why was he effective? And I believe he was effective as a witness because his sole aim was to promote Jesus. He had no mixed motives. It would appear that he had no mixed motives. It's easy for us to have mixed motives. Yes, I'm promoting Jesus, but are people noticing me? Are 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 people aware of me? Yes, I'm promoting Jesus. But what we see with John is, sorry, with John the Baptist, yeah, that he deflected attention away from himself in a negative way, first of all, with some knots, all right? He said not repeatedly. Let's just look at 19, verse 19, chapter 1. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess. What does that mean? Well, he didn't let people assume he was something when he wasn't. We might do that. We might have a a favourable assumption about us. People get the impression that we've done something and we let them have that impression, even though it's not true, all right, because it's it's kind of good for us. It gives, gives gives a good impression. But John won't do that. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? I think he's still talking about, they're still talking about Elijah. He answered, no. So there is the negative. And then they've got to say, well, who are you then? Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, if that was us, we'd say, oh, about myself. Well, um, I was born of a priestly family um, and I've done this and I've done that and I've managed this. Uh, you're asking about me? You want to, yeah, I can tell you some more about me. But what does John say? He says, I'm a voice. That's all I am. I'm just a voice. You don't need to know any more about me. I'm just a voice. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. So he gives a positive witness now in verse 29. 
The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. That he might be revealed. And a bit further down, verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So there was a negative witness, I am not, and then there's a positive witness, this is he. So if you turn to chapter 3, and uh, verse 27. This talks about Jesus' joy. Sorry, John's joy. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them. Sorry, I'm, verse 20, I'm not reading verse 27. I'll read verse 22. Sorry. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. We need to know that, don't we? The church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. We can often say, oh, it's Fred's church or it's John's church, right? It's just a figure of speech, but it isn't our church. It's Jesus' church, and it belongs to him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. He says, and is full of joy when he, sorry, and the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. So John is saying, my joy is is when Jesus is revealed to the people. When, when Jesus is made much of, when Jesus is promoted, that is my joy. And it's absolutely complete. And for that to continue, he says, he must become greater, I must become less. So John was not satisfied with the revelation of Jesus as it were then. He wanted to continue to promote him. And his secret was... I've got to keep on becoming less so that he can become more. That is the secret. And he's now free um, from his own personal attention, the need for personal attention. He could preach Christ with clarity. Um, There's an echo there from, from the Apostle Paul I put at the bottom of that page. Remember Paul... And he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He finds there are people who are chasing after all the different leaders. I'm of Paul, now I'm of Apollos. They were making too much of their leaders. And what Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And then in 2 Corinthians... For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So John's secret in giving maximum promotion to Jesus was to demote himself in his own eyes, right? It was to make himself less. And out of that, he found the fullness of joy. This was his greatest joy to see Jesus Elevated like that. So I'll just draw to a close with 
perhaps some, some application. I do realise that you might think some of these things don't apply to me. Some of them I'm going to mention are particularly uh, important for leaders. But um, to be an effective witness, we must be careful what we say about ourselves and, and how we promote our needs. That's very, very important. And we must be aware, uh, beware of certain things. First of all, preoccupation with ourselves and our needs. Now, I do realise that there are times in our life when we have tremendous need and it's inevitable that that will be a focus for us at the time being. But I'm talking about normally now, that our Christian life shouldn't be focused on me and my needs. I shouldn't look at the church and say, well, the church is here to meet my needs. Uh, That's why I come, so that my needs can be met. No, we are part of the church so that we can serve and that we can glorify Jesus. That's our principal aim, to serve one another and to serve the purposes of God in the world or whatever and and, uh, to make much of Jesus. And I would suggest that if we make those things our priority, our needs will be better met. But if we focus on our needs... Uh, then many of them will not be met. But if we focus on serving and glorifying Jesus, we will find that our needs are met. Beware of the witness who needs attention. Leaders and preachers are particularly vulnerable to this. I kind of alluded to it earlier. But I'm here. How much do I want you to notice me, to give me credit for the things that I do? right. If there's some good things happening here, I want you to know that, that I'm partly responsible for some of those things. If it's the bad things, forget it. But if it's anything good, I might want you to know. How do I feel when others are recognised and thanked and I am not? How do I feel about that? Is that important to me? We have to be careful about even telling stories as preachers against ourselves. That's what we, It's a good way to try and keep the focus off us, isn't it, in one sense. So, uh, but, and, and it's a good way of not highlighting the faults in other people, is to talk about your own faults. But we have this happy knack somehow or other of something creeps in there which just gives us a little bit of credit in the story. Of course, um, I prayed every day and God answered my prayer and met my need. You know, Oh, he prays every day, does he? Well, you know what I mean. So we just have to be very careful about that. But... Just be careful of people who need attention, particularly leaders. And then beware of the trappings of authority. Again, this is a thing perhaps more for leaders than anybody else. But an example would be um, the titles that people insist that are recognised for themselves. I'm not trying to get at, say, the Anglican Church, for instance, who who have vicars and rectors and canons and all the rest of it. That's the system. But people who insist on it for themselves. You'll hardly believe this story, but um, there was a pastor in Medway, and I'm not going to use his name, and um, that he would correct people if they just used his Christian name and did not use his title. So let's, let's call him Gerald, shall we? And they say, hello, Gerald. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's Pastor Gerald, please. It, you got that? It's Pastor, it's Pastor Gerald. <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? Have you noticed in the New Testament that none of the apostles have titles? It's Peter, it's Paul, it's John. And I think the apostle Paul would be horrified to think that the authorised version calls him Saint Paul. 
I think so. He'd be horrified at that because the titles are just a job description. They're, they're not. They're not a title as such. But, um, I've, I've um, noticed occasionally in Christian magazines that some of the big conferences that are held in London, Christian conferences, where they've got loads and loads of speakers. They have all the photographs of the speakers on the, uh, on the advertisement. And um, underneath the speaker, they've all got a title. So they're bishop somebody or other, they're prophet somebody or other, they're pastor somebody or other, and the worship leader is psalmist. You know, I, <laughs> psalmist Steve. Psalmist Steve will now lead the worship. All right. Now, I'm not judging those people. Maybe it's the system that is insisting on that, you know. But we're only servants. You know, we're only servants. John Piper has written a really excellent book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And that's it. We're only servants, all right? It's Jesus that matters. Beware of those who defend their ministry. Now that, if I come to your church, can I exercise my ministry, please? Um, Well, maybe. But what we have to say is that our ministry is a gift from God. Anything that we have is by the grace of God. And it's by his behest that we have any ministry at all. And God can take it away when he likes. He can put somebody else in our place. And we're all going to be replaced anyway. So we need to be sensitive uh, about our ministry. And the issue isn't whether I get the opportunity to exercise my ministry. The issue is, is the church growing? Will the church grow? Will, will, as a company of people, will we display the fullness of the stature of Christ? Will we give glory to Jesus as we gather? Not whether I get the chance to perform my ministry. How about this one? Looking for joy and fulfilment aside from promoting Jesus. Now, I want you to understand this. I'm not saying that we can't have joy in a multitude of things that God has given us. In music, in friendship, in family... Uh, in the countryside, you just name it, in food or whatever, of course we can find joy. But in terms perhaps of our church life, where do we find our greatest joy? I'll just kind of pause there for a moment. Where do we find our greatest joy? And I put a question there for you. What makes a good Christian meeting for you? You come away and say, this was a good Christian meeting. This was a good meeting? Is it the music style or the worship style? Was the preacher entertaining? What We come away feeling good about it. Why is that? Why is that? And, you know, if people say this when they leave the meeting, what are they conveying? Well, that service didn't do much for me. I don't know about you, but it didn't do much for me. Ever heard that? Yeah. Ever said it? <laughs> But again, it's a, it's a me-centred thing, isn't it? It's saying, this, this has got to feed me. And um, the, the question is, did it glorify Jesus? Was, was Jesus uplifted and glorified in it? And um, you know, I think we, we've got to say that we want to make our services lively, engaging and relevant to people's needs. But the bottom line is, um, was Jesus glorified in it? I have occasion, you know, to go to church, church services, different denominations and things. Sometimes it's um, the ordination of ministers, which and these can be quite formal. 
And it's quite easy to switch off and say, this isn't my style. I don't want to be reading and repeating everything off a sheet. But I've tried to look at, I've tried to look at what's there. And I've looked at the hymns and I've looked at the scriptures and I've looked at what they're saying about the responsibilities of leaders. And very often I have to say, they're spot on. They're absolutely spot on because it's Jesus, Jesus all the way. The style is not my style. But I want to acknowledge that it's Jesus all the way. So, back to John the Baptist as we close. John was a man of destiny, very clearly. We are people of destiny. We, you know, we used to sing the song, I have a destiny, and it's a city on a hill. All right? I like to think of it's the new heavens and the new earth. We definitely have a destiny, people. We really do. And part of that destiny is to be witnesses for Jesus. So how are we going to do it? What can get in the way of, of us being witnesses? And John was happy to deflect attention away from himself. Naturally, we attract it at times. I know I do. I certainly do at times. I'm surely aware of that. But, but let's try to emulate John and say, I've got to decrease. He's got to increase to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you not only tell us the activities of people, but, Lord, you show us their heart. Lord, you show us their passion. Lord, for the, the glory of Jesus. And, Father, if, if we've lost some of our passion for the glory of Jesus, will you reignite it, even now? Lord, and help us to see that that, that can be our greatest joy, that as Jesus is glorified, magnified, made much of, promoted, whatever word we want to use, Lord, it can bring us the greatest joy. Please help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. As always, if you'd like prayer, please see us afterwards. We'd love to pray with you.